he's concerned about swearing. Um, to assume he's <laughs> referring to damn, I don't. I guess no. He's he's referring to hands. That's a, that's an American sure. swear. You can't say hands in America without getting looks. Right, you're gonna have to beep all that then. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning back into the ADR podcast. I'm Brian Hamilton, and joining me this week, the host of Ruminates, uh, Rob Lewis. Is UK a family name, or just Rob Lewis UK? Uh, no, just, just Rob Lewis is, is good. Uh, UK was <laughs> good, the, good. the modifier to make sure I can get that username everywhere. <laughs> yeah, because there's no other Rob Lewis's in the UK, and all the other Rob Lewis's in the world are not in the UK. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Oh no, it's great! Uh, thanks for thanks for asking me to come on and allowing me to specifically talk about this film. Yeah, no, this movie, Back to the Future, uh, your choice uh, seems to be a favorite of yours. Uh, you own many Legos for it, and uh, you have talked about this movie elsewhere, I believe, right? You've talked about it on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I've talked about it on, on Twitter. Um, I think maybe I've mentioned it a little bit on on Ruminate. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, you mentioned I've got some Lego. I've also got a tattoo. Um, oh my god really what maybe. what is it uh yeah it's a, a delorean um and with the clock uh bifco logo hoverboard um i'll, I'll, I'll get a picture for the, for the show notes for you. <laughs> that is incredible listeners scroll down in your podcast app of choice and look at these tattoos i'm sure they're awesome i haven't seen them yet but wow oh my god so you are a big fan of back to the future oh yeah definitely um i think i've got maybe five or six of different various Blu-ray and DVD box sets, um, just so I can have all the different editions and special features and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, this is a movie with a lore, and I'm sure any time that a DVD Blu-ray set comes out, uh, they can do any number of extra extra special features that weren't in any other editions because people want to talk about the movie like we are doing uh we're going to do something a little bit different i usually do a movie recommendation at the beginning like how would you describe it to somebody who hasn't seen it it's back to the future everyone's seen it so we're just going to jump right in Uh, i want to talk to you rob what does this movie mean to you you're obviously a huge fan when did you see it for the first time and what drew you to it yeah so i was thinking about this you know before the podcast the last couple of days and I guess I must have been, must have been quite young, maybe six or seven. Um, I would have seen it for the first time, and I remember we had it on video, and it had been recorded off TV, um, and it had these kind of, you know, you'd get to a little bit, and there'd be like a, an advert break that presumably my my parents had tried to kind of cut out when they were recording it. Um, so I kind of remember where these breaks were, even when I'm watching it now. Um, <laughs> but I I remember, you know, all the time probably up until I was about 13 or 14, which was when I first got the DVD set, um, I would be watching that video all the time. Um, I think probably, I've probably watched it maybe 40 or 50 times now. Really? Wow, you've managed to keep track all these years. That's that's amazing. Well, I'm certainly not keeping track, but I've kind of done the maths <laughs> on it, and, and, and it's, it's definitely around the, the 40 mark, if not a little bit higher than that. Now, this movie is infinitely rewatchable. Even sitting down to watch it in the past few days, I was like, you know, I've seen this movie so many times, I still want to watch it. Everything, I, I would call this a damn near perfect movie. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I think um, you, you can just kind of, I can put it on and there's always something else to see because there's so much going on in the background as well with, you know, kind of props and shop fronts and, and things like that. You can expect things like that from a modern Marvel movie because they know that people are going to go through and freeze frame every little thing trying to find out little hints about what the next villain, movie's villain is going to be. But back in 1985, the fact that you know people probably didn't expect, uh, maybe not the fan base, but people performing a little Zapruder film analysis on it, like freeze framing things and looking for all these little details, the Lone Pines Mall uh, at the end of the movie, I had never noticed that until I saw something on Reddit about it. And the fact that they put that in there and thought about a detail that tiny and that hilarious, um, I would not have expected from 1985. There's always something new to watch with this movie. Yeah, the, the, there's that, and you know, there's loads of other things. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to while we're talking mm-hmm. about the film. But I, th- I think, like you say, it's amazing that not only did they do this, but the, the film, you know, the the studio didn't really want to make the film. Um, I, I don't know if you've watched the uh, Back in Time documentary, but they talk a little bit about how 
um, I think it's Universal, just just weren't that interested in making it. Really? That's that's mind-blowing, especially now that it's so popular as it is. I haven't seen the documentary now. Yeah, I think it's on Netflix. It's um, maybe an hour or so. It's, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, it seemed like there was definitely this... Um, I think, you know, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale had kind of been pushing to make this film for, I think, five years or so before they actually got to make it. And and even then, kind of Universal just weren't that interested in, in doing it. And the star power they got behind it would not indicate that. I always thought this was like a big tentpole thing, the fact that they got Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd, who I guess maybe weren't as famous if that was the case. But uh, now you think this is a star-studded cast. Yeah, definitely. I mean, of course, they filmed... I think it was something like a third or two thirds of the film with uh, with Eric Stoltz. Um, they and and then they just decided that he he was no good and and uh, got Michael J. Fox instead. Which, I mean, I can't imagine them doing that now. You can you imagine them filming kind of Avengers or something for six months and then going, <laughs> oh no, we're going to change somebody. Um, you know, I mean, that'd probably be like a billion dollars gone. There's reshoots on Rogue One. <gasps> oh no, this movie's going to be ter- no. That just happened all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, the movie starts off with a really cool opening sequence that I think is, again, one of the most perfect things ever uh, filmed because it gets all of the details that you need before the credits end. And there's no dialogue except for the uh, the woman on the uh, TV and a few lines from Michael J. Fox uh, wondering where Doc Brown is. But uh, all the clocks, the plutonium... Uh, the fact that Einstein has not been there to eat his uh, disgusting dog food that has been piling up for weeks and weeks, it looks like. Um, all of those little details, again, just paint a perfect picture of what you're going to expect. And uh, then we are introduced to Michael J. Fox in a really weird... Did you ever, do you play guitar? Uh, I, I played a little bit of, uh, of bass for a while, uh, but but no, I haven't... I, I couldn't say I, I play very well, no. <laughs> As a guitar player growing up, this amplifier in this scene <laughs> melted my brain. I wanted it so bad. Yeah, and the opening shot, I think, is nice because you get this this long, you know, it kind of goes on for maybe two, two and a half minutes, this, this opening shot. You get all the clocks and, you know, that kind of gives you the impression, okay, this is somebody who's maybe a little bit eccentric and, and weird. Just a little. It, yeah. Um, and, you know, like you say, all the machines to open the dog food and, and the toast popping up. And then, of course, that shot ends with the skateboard hitting the uh, the plutonium uh, kind of container. Um, and of course, at that point, you've no idea what that's for or what that, what that's in relation to. But, um, but yeah, the, the opening shot is just great. And then, as you say, you get onto the, uh, the, the guitar amplifier. And even as somebody who doesn't play guitar, I still just loved it. Like, when I was watching, <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. I want to just do that i don't care if i'm gonna get thrown across the room the fact that like this is a i i would call this a geeky movie and uh you know time travel all the sciencey bits behind it and all the cool quirky geeky little details they throw in uh also shout out to doc brown hanging from one of the clocks in that opening shot a uh, little paper cutout of doc brown hanging on one of the hands like he does at the end of the movie uh they they make marty mcfly such a cool character for a surprisingly geeky movie. And they established that here with him uh, hanging out with this amazing electric guitar that I guess Doc built for him. I'm guessing that like they're close enough uh, friends that uh, Marty can ask him to build a massive guitar amp for him and he would do it, which I think is awesome. Yeah, I guess so. maybe it's a birthday, Christmas present, who knows? But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Like you, you get this impression he's like, you know, he's not the kind of, the, the kind of typical thing you get in these kind of 80s sci-fi films is kind of a geeky kid who's like, you know, maybe you'll get a scene of being bullied at the beginning. I guess in in some ways more of what you see of his dad in 1955, kind of a bit later on. Yeah, he is a dweeb and we see him later in 1985 as a dweeb and uh, very uh, spineless and difficult to talk to, but his son is surprisingly cool. And for a sci-fi movie, the fact that, I mean, they get, they touch on those geeky bits, especially the sci-fi stuff later on when, uh, uh, when George McFly becomes a renowned sci-fi author, which I think is awesome. But what they end up doing is, uh, making this really cool kid. And they got Huey Lewis in the news who, I guess they were popular at the time. This is a really great song. And, uh, the fact that they were able to get that and make the movie as appealing as it was, even to not sci-fi fans, uh, 
it works. The fact that uh, all this just works perfectly together, I think it works really well. Yeah, Huey Lewis in the news, I believe, had turned down Ghostbusters doing the the theme song for that. And uh, so when they got offered this, obviously seeing as Ghostbusters was so popular, they jumped on this to to do it. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's so cool. The fact that I can't imagine Huey Lewis doing the theme to Ghostbusters. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Ghostbusters theme is pretty iconic at this point. Um, but yeah, apparently they'd kind of been offered it and they said, oh, you know, we don't really want to do a, you know, science fiction film, you know, it's ghosts and whatever. They didn't really want to do it. So they they got offered to do this and so they now they actually have two songs uh, on the soundtrack for this. Mm-hmm. Back in Time, which is used uh, very well at the end of the movie in a really cute little tongue-in-cheek moment. Uh, so Marty is skateboarding off to school to the sound of Huey Lewis in the news, and he exudes cool and doesn't give a crap. Uh, we get a little moment of uh, school shenanigans with uh, Strickland and uh, Jennifer trying to sneak him into class, which I- I'm a sucker for those kinds of 80s uh, school hijinks things like Breakfast Club, all the John Hughes movies. I'm watching Stranger Things now and they do the same thing there. I love these little school moments and we don't really get many of those in this movie, something that is a hallmark of the 80s to me. Yeah, it's kind of weird for somebody for the UK as well because the, the the kind of concepts that get thrown around in these kind of eighties schools and and the you know the movies like we don't like is it tardy does that mean late is that <laughs> yes, that, yes that's not that's just not even in the lexicon of anyone in the UK that's not a thing that really happens at all um, and and it's kind of interesting just schools in general because in the UK most schools have uniform. Um, whereas as best I can tell from the U S like all schools, just, you know, everyone's just dressing however they want. Um, which I think gives this, I don't know. It's kind of a nice base for films because you can kind of, uh, you can kind of see what's going on with the different people and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. No, there's a sense of style in here that I can't possibly imagine anybody having if they're uh, in uniform. I remember my like elementary school, there was talk of perhaps getting uniforms for them uh, for us back then. But there was no way in hell that was happening. We all protested and we all did some. uh, We made sure that wasn't going to happen. But no, I I wanted to ask you, uh, did anything else about this movie? Because this is an extremely American movie. Did anything else about the movie strike you as uh, bizarre or difficult or difficult to approach? Like, did the movie mean anything differently to you because it's so far removed in little ways like that? No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, like I say, the school thing, that's just something that, you know, I've got used to from watching, you know, American TV and movies and stuff. So it's not really, <laughs> um, you know, because there's a lot of American TV. Like we do have some great British shows and, and movies, but, you know, there there is a lot of American TV um, and movies available. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, what is it? You know, it's skateboarding. He plays guitar as a time machine. Like it's just cool things that that, that people <laughs> want to watch. I, I think I really think that's what appealed to me more than anything was just time travel is just cool. Like the idea of it is amazing, and the fact that this movie has become the de facto time travel example. Like if you have a time travel movie and you don't explicitly spell out the rules of that time travel movie. Everyone defaults to Back to the Future rules. <laughs> yeah, those are the rules, as far as I'm concerned. I, yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, you've got this, and I think maybe the TARDIS is the only other kind of really iconic, um, you know, time machine, but that's obviously not its primary purpose. Um, and then I guess you've got the phone box from Bill and Ted as well. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that... This was probably one of the first major uh, examples of time travel in a movie or TV show, Doctor Who notwithstanding. Uh, the fact that they were able to explain it in the uh, scene that they did with uh, by going step by step and sending Einstein one minute into the future, having him disappear for a hot second, and then explaining that to him it was instantaneous. That's the best way I've seen to explain time travel to a mass audience. That's so cool. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean like it's it's this, you know, maybe five set five minute sequence. You know, you see the t- time machine disappears. Einstein comes back. You understand it for the rest of the film. You understand exactly what's happening, which obviously leads us on, you know, fairly soon to to Marty going to 1955 and you're not confused by that. You understand exactly what's happened. 
Um, yeah, I completely agree with this. It's such a such a great way to explain it. I actually think those kinds of time travel rules that they explain, showing like the two clocks side by side with one exactly a minute later than the other, um, the fact that th- that kind of rule is explained in depth so well, that actually pays off more in Back to the Future 2 when things get much more nitty gritty. Because there's really only two major time travel trips in this movie. And as much as I like this movie and the fact that, you know, this is one of my favorite movies, there's not much time travel in it, and they really crank that up to 11 in uh, Back to the Future 2. Yeah, 2 is two is the one where it really gets uh, kind of crazy and a little bit more complicated, but we also get, I know we're kind of talking about the first film, but in the second <laughs> one where he does the diagram uh, on the blackboard to explain what's happened with the alternate 1985, I think that again is another great example of being able to explain this concept which is crazy like it it doesn't make any real sense but to be able to just explain it on the blackboard and say you know this is where we are this is where the timeline skewed and and you can kind of visually see it and then from then on you know you can just enjoy the rest of the film again and there are little devices throughout to kind of reinforce that idea like the picture that fades which makes absolutely no sense we'll talk about that i'm sure uh the picture that fades all the little things changing his hand fading away at the end those little devices that show um, how much things are changing and how things could possibly change and affect the future they work um when at the end of the movie everything's completely different you understand why and it's really funny because with the science stuff out of the way you can just get the jokes so Marty goes back to 1955 after, oh, I completely forgot about this, the terrorists, the Iranian terrorists that uh, uh going after Doc Brown. Uh, that's the one part of the movie that I completely forgot about when I came, uh, came and rewatched because it's so, <laughs> it's so heavy, uh, the fact that it's in the movie uh, at all. I, what do you think of that? It always felt out of place to me. Yeah, I mean, we're like, we're 20 minutes in and... I mean, I, I thought about, did I do I remember watching this as a kid, like these particular scenes? And if I'm honest, I guess I don't really. Or if I did, they, they certainly didn't affect me. But, you know, like I said, we're 20 minutes in and the, one of the main characters, as far as we're concerned, is is, is dead. Um, you know, you've got terrorists, they shoot him. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a really weird scene, given the, the, the kind of feel of the rest of the film. And the only thing that this serves well it serves two things i guess to kill doc brown and then that comes back later when he tries to save him through the power of time travel but it also establishes that uh marty cannot get back without nuclear power um again i feel like they could have done it a little bit more smoothly like there could have been not not something hand wavy but maybe something that was a little bit less involving terrorists killing people (laughs) to illustrate that he's stuck in 1955 yeah, I mean, I, I think it could have just as easily been the police, and he yeah. stole the uranium from a lab of some description. Um, I, I guess maybe they thought, I don't know, the 80s was, I don't know. I don't know why they made that decision, <laughs> but they did. And it's, uh, yeah, in the words of Joe, it, it was the style at the time. <laughs> Indeed it was. Indeed it was a style of the time. No, I, uh, yeah, you're right. It was probably something that meant a lot more to people then than it does now. Uh, but at, at the very least, he's stuck in 1955 and can't actually get back without nuclear power. And then they explain all that later. But in one of my favorite scenes in the movie, uh, we have Marty as uh, an alien from outer space, according to the kid, with an eerily accurate comic book that shows exactly <laughs> what's happening. Um, th- this movie's cute. It, it it does a few really, really cute things while still being really genuine. But this is one of those cute moments where, oh, okay, there's a little kid with a, uh, with a comic book that is showing ex- exactly what's happening as uh, Marty McFly drives through a barn. <laughs> and, and, and he's also bought the comic with him when the entire family have gone running out to the barn in the middle of the night. Well, as you know, Bob, this is my comic book. <laughs> no, they, um, uh, what could have been going through this kid's head where the dad gets a shotgun shooting at this guy, trying to figure out what the hell's going on with his farm in this, this weird, uh, space age car that just drove through his entire property. What is in this kid's head that makes him want to bring this comic? You're right. <laughs> Oh, it's ridiculous. And then uh, he gets away after being shot at by uh, Farmer 
what's his name? Not Brown. That's the doc. Uh, uh, what? I forget. The guy with uh, the Twin Pines Mall, uh, so named for his Twin Pines uh, outside of his uh, outside of his property. But Marty drives over one, and the mall is at the end of the movie called Lone Pines Mall, and it's fantastic. <laughs> it was uh, Old Man Peabody. Old Man Peabody, thank you, thank you. And uh, this, yeah, so he 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 does the goes over one of the pines, uh, which obviously sets up the kind of subtle joke at the end with with Lone Pine Mall, and then it instantly turns to daytime. It goes from nighttime, and the ne- exactly the next scene, it's completely daytime. So whether or not he actually like drove around and searched for anything that whole time, or he just slept, who knows? It's great. Yeah, it certainly doesn't give that impression. Um, you know, the next scene, it feels like he's, you know, it, it doesn't give the impression that he's been driving for miles and miles, but I guess maybe he could have been. Yeah, who knows? I mean, he is out of gas at one point, right? So there's definitely that that he'd be able to do. Um, and then he has to hide the DeLorean. Uh, behind the uh, behind the billboard to the place where he has not been, uh, his uh, development has not been built yet, and that's a nice little moment where a musical sting goes dun dun. Your house doesn't exist yet, and <laughs> it's very creepy um, to actually show the reality. Okay, this is not a dream. He's actually gone back in time, and then stumbles into Main Street, wherein everything has changed, and it's a. This is where I think. Uh, uh, Michael J. Fox's performance really shines is when he's freaking the hell out about what's happening. Oh yeah, I mean he just the the what the way he kind of moves around between all the cars and he he grabs the newspaper from the bin, what's the bin trash can is what you, you can I say know. bin. I know what I can say is. bin. You know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> it's only when I say it out loud and I go, wait, does that mean anything to other people? <laughs> uh, so yeah, you know he grabs the newspaper and he sees that it's 1955 and yeah, he's. he's and this is a really nice scene because it kind of sets up um, for a second time kind of what the, the Hill Valley uh, town square, I guess you'd call it, you know, the town square, um, mm-hmm. how that's going to look. And, of course, that is repeated. Um, you know, we've, we've had it slightly at the beginning of the film uh, where he's talking with Jennifer. And then we get it in Back to the Future 2 and, and Back to the Future 3 as well. Yep, yep. Uh, I wanted to talk about the repetition there where every, like there's a bit in every single movie where they establish the new uh the new hill valley and the new town center they establish uh the Jennifer character and they or not the Jennifer the mom character and they establish uh uh some kind of chase scene and every single movie has those aspects and again it's cute and somehow it works except for I think the third movie but here uh as we're going in for the first time, having not seen the other movies because they don't exist for the purposes of this podcast, uh, we are uh, treated to a nice little uh, moment where Marty's trying to figure out what's going on and stumbling into a little soda tap pub. What, what would you call that? Some kind of like... Like a, a diner? Is that not a diner? Yeah, I guess it's a diner. Yeah, it's a diner. That makes sense. Um, and stumbles upon his father, uh, which is one of the first weird moments of the movie. Yeah, we get a couple of couple of moments here where it's like, oh, look how weird the fifties would be to somebody from the eighties, where he asks for a Pepsi free and he asks for a tab. You gotta pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's it's it kind of enhances the 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 idea that no, this is really happening, and yes, it would be very very strange if you ended up thirty years ago because. You know, even something as simple as a Pepsi free, which I assume is like a diet Pepsi of some kind. Yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, you know, even something as simple as that kind of then becomes quite difficult. What'd you do? Jump ship? What's with the life preserver? Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to uh, mention this as well. Uh, the levels of nostalgia here, because here we are in 2016, looking back at a movie from 30 years ago about a time 30 years before that. So all the nostalgia jokes there are nostalgic to the people from the 80s, but then there's 80s jokes in there that are nostalgic to us because here we are 30 years after the fact. It's it's anachronisms all the way down. I love it. Yeah, it really is great. It's I, I like the um, just the fact that, you know, you've got the town square and, and everything is basically identical but obviously they've just swapped out all the shops which of course you know generally does happen in in towns and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but it it kind of gives this nice contrast between the two different time periods 
things really seemed to have gone to hell uh, in 1985 as really, really uh, established for me uh, when he goes back to 1985 and there's a homeless guy sleeping right there in the muck. Yeah, so this scene gives us the first kind of, um, this is the first moment where he's messed something up um, or, you know, he possibly changes the timeline or or certainly affects it um, because he's talking to, um, you know, he's talking to his dad after Biff has come in, um, obviously young Biff, um, and uh, the uh, the cleaner there is is Goldie Wilson, who we've already been shown is going to be mayor in in 1985, I think. Um, you know, we get the re-election uh, cargo passed, um, and he says, "That's right, you're going to be mayor." And Goldie Wilson goes, "Hmm, mayor," and he you know runs Sounds off like and a good he thinks, idea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and of course, at this point, we don't know if. We've got some kind of loop where he's only become mayor because Marty's told him, but this is kind of the first instance where he's done something that has directly affected um, what's going to happen in the future. And that happens several times in the movie with little jokes like, it's your cousin, Marvin Barry, like little things like that where he knows, oh, that Chuck Berry heard about his own song from Marty McFly. That's fantastic. And uh, Marty, that's a cool name at the end of the movie, like little jokes like that that show the impact he has on the future. It's it doesn't. Well, it, it is very overt, but it's subtle enough that you wouldn't think it's silly. This this is a very silly movie at times, but the script makes things so genuine and all the characters are so good that even when ridiculous things happen like that, like maybe I'll be mayor, like it feels real and it works. And at this point in the movie, we don't know what's going to happen, what the plot of the movie is. We don't know yet that he has to try to get back, get his parents back together. And at this point, yeah, like we can assume he's going to try to get back to 1985, but uh, right now, there's no actual plot. It's just little jokes happening here and there to try to establish the characters and the world, which I think is kind of cool. So the next thing we see is immediately after we meet George, his father, uh, we see him climbing into a tree. What's happening in that tree? Mm, I was way too young to have seen this movie for the first time. It's really <laughs> creepy. Him looking into the window of Lorraine as she's taking off her shirt. Uh, we both saw this when we were how young? I, I-, I had to have seen this when I was like 10 Maybe. Yeah, I was probably even a bit younger than that, maybe maybe six or seven. This is also the movie where I first learned the term asshole, so we can thank uh, Back to the Future for corrupting my <laughs> uh, innocent little mind. Uh, but this is the big turn in the movie when things actually start to happen and things start to go haywire is when uh, the cute story of how uh, George and Lorraine met uh, when the when Lorraine's father hit him with the car... That has now been switched out to Marty, the good Samaritan who pushes George out of the way. George runs away. Marty's the one hit with the car. Lorraine falls in love with her son. And it's creepy as hell. The subtext was lost on me. Again, I was 10. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think I ever really understood or spotted how weird that is. Like, just this whole, you know, his mom is in love with him or she's got a crush on him or, you know, however you want to call it. I don't think I ever really paid any attention to that until i was you know a little bit older i thought it was cute and clever and like oh that's kind of funny but yeah no that's really really creepy what was it i think it was merlin who was talking about how oh this is the uh his daughter knows this movie as the movie where a mother and son kiss oh (laughs) it's like oh no that's that's not what this movie is about at all it's just disturbing on a whole number of levels but either way we learned that um george is out of the picture and uh, now Marty is the one in Lorraine's sights, which is creepy and uh, not okay for his future because he cannot be his own father in this case. And this is where the time travel stuff starts to kind of go awry. He meets Doc Brown in 1985 or 1955 next and explains that this picture is starting to fade, which I guess he noticed because of uh, this change in the time stream. Sure, but until this point, though, he he Marty hasn't realised what he's done. Right. Um. We we don't get that until the next scene where they go to the school, um, and 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 Doc kind of says, "How did your parents ever even meet?" Because you know George McFly is kind of being kicked and bullied, and then it dawns on Marty where he says, "Oh yeah, you know, because that was because you know my grandpa hit him with the car, and then he kind of realises what he's actually done." 
Right, right. And uh, as we see at the end of the movie, that really doesn't change his character. He's still a dweeb who happens to uh, have a relationship with a popular girl, but uh, we it doesn't actually change anything about his character like the events of this movie do, where at the end of the movie, he's much more confident and real. Uh, and at this point, he realizes things aren't good and he has to try to against all odds because him being hit with uh lorraine's father's car is a one in a million shot he has to find another one in a million shot to try to get them back together <laughs> and so begins the hijinks um yeah I, I i've always thought that this plot in addition to trying to get back to 1950 or 1985 i can't get the times right because they sound so similar 1985 Mar- marty needs to get back to 1985 uh him having to deal with that while also trying to get his parents back together and deal with the existential crisis of his mom having a crush on him. That's always felt like too much happening to me, but the movie really does a good job of bouncing back and forth between those two plots. Yeah, it's definitely kind of hard. I mean, it's obviously easier for us because we, you know, we've seen the film quite a few times, but you know, I can imagine if I'd watched this for the first time as an adult, I'd probably be kind of, you know, as you say, all over the place. There's so much going on. Um, you know, but they, they do manage to, to, I think mostly kind of keep it together because, you know, once Doc is kind of right, this is the plan. Here's the scale model. Here's what's going to happen. Once that's out of the way, there's not really a lot for the Doc to do. Mm -hmm. Um, he kind of, once he's set that up, Marty just needs to make sure his parents get back together. Exactly. Uh, which leads to a very, very stressful ending sequence, but we'll get to that. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's, um, this movie is a little under two hours long and all the stuff that happens in it really um, in my eyes is a good example of a comedy of storytelling where you're able to figure out all the stuff that's happening with a few really, really, really well scripted scenes that get everything across that you need, including the scale model, including, Hey, wait, this flyer for uh, the clock tower, 1004 exactly at this time. This is now fantastic. It's a uh, very, weird to have all of that happen at once but it works the scene in uh, doc brown's living room where they realize that they can use the lightning to uh get back to the future ding uh that works it's it's awesome it's uh it sets the course for the rest of the movie they're trying to figure out how to get those 1.21 gigawatts into the uh it's gigawatt by the way thanks to uh, pronunciation but um trying to get that into the delorean uh it's established in maybe 45 seconds and it's awesome yeah it's great and i think a lot like the kind of explanation of how the time travel works the the scale model is kind of nice to give you an idea right this is what we're aiming for you know but that's clearly going to happen a little bit later on because we've got all this other stuff to do right right yeah they they pace that out pretty well there's only a few scenes really pertaining to the actual trying to get back to 1985 but it works and then the entire rest of the movie the entire middle hour the fact that they're able to do all of that while still having an extended skateboard chase sequence like it's awesome uh and he just kind of goofs off in 1955 for a while uh being silly and trying to get his parents back together uh do you have any highlights from the second act of the movie uh those funny anachronisms that happen yeah it's I, I i mean i really like the skateboard scene i think it it um you know it, it, it just works really really well um this idea that uh people you know it's you know because the kid kind of says oh you broke it like when he rips the top of the, the 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 scooter off to turn it into a skateboard and this idea that people didn't know what a skateboard was at that point um mm-hmm. it is, is kind of interesting and i did double check that and it's entirely possible that they didn't know what skateboards were um in this <laughs> in this you know imaginary town in, in the middle of america somewhere um but yeah i i, I think the skateboard scene's really nice and um kind of the the interactions that he has with his dad trying to kind of convince him to you know, uh, come come and fight him in the car at the dance and, and these kind of things. It's, it's just a, a really nice kind of sequence of events. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marty hanging out with uh, Crispin Glover is one of my favorite moments in the movie uh, when they're trying to, when he's like hanging his laundry out back and Marty's trying to convince him to take Lorraine to the dance. I think it's so incredibly cute because he, at one point he mentions something like, oh, I can't go to the dance because I'd miss my favorite TV show, science theater or something or other. And Science fiction yeah, that's, theater. 
science fiction theory. That's totally something I would do and have done before. And the infinitely cool guy hanging out with the geek is one of my favorite uh, tropes in movies. Yeah, it's really fun, and I, I just love the way Crispin Glover delivers some of his lines as well, because obviously he's supposed to be very nervous, and, you know, Marty's like, come on, you're lying, George, and he kind of, he's completely daydreaming and doesn't know what's going on, and, and he's kind of, you know, hey, you, get your damn hands off her, and then he's, he's concerned about swearing, um, which I assume <laughs> he's referring to damn, I don't... I guess, no, he's he's referring to hands, that's, that's an American sure. swear, you can't say hands in America without getting looks. Right, you're gonna have to beep all that then. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's really funny, and then of course uh, that leads to his nerves lead to "You are my density," which I say at least once a week. What? It's just a, an amazing line. Yeah, it's it's perfect <laughs> because he doesn't understand, uh, or I'm, I guess he does understand in a way what love is and what he's looking for, and the fact that he has a crush on her, but. Um, he just flubs it and immediately defaults back to science and says that he uh, that she is his density and it's really really cute uh and what else what else uh we have darth vader from planet vulcan visiting <laughs> crispin glover yeah that's kind of a nice nod to you know just just to other kind of um you know franchises um and of course it also is another reminder Oh look, we're in 1955. They wouldn't know what these things are yet, um, you know, because obviously that they both though Darth Vader and the Planet Vulcan are both kind of immediately recognizable, presumably to anyone watching this. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Van Halen cassette tape and the headphones. The fact that George doesn't immediately rip off the headphones. What are these things on my head? Always confused me. But uh, loud Van Halen is enough to convince him that Darth Vader from Planet Vulcan has a. Uh, aural death ray thing that goes directly into his ears and causes pain and convinces him to take Lorraine out to the dance and it's wonderful <laughs> yeah it really is great and then uh, so we get uh, Lorraine following him following Marty back to the doc's house which is huge in 1955 it's, it's a massive house um, yeah yeah <laughs> um, but yeah so she follows him back and and you know we get this marty kind of lying to the doc oh yeah i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure it's all sorted and george definitely asks her and then of course she comes in and says well she actually says uh, would you mind asking me to the dance so she doesn't directly ask him to go <laughs> she's asking him to ask her to go it's not the sadie hawkins dance he has to ask her officially but there's a little wink wink nudge nudge hey you want to take me to the dance and uh i thought that was really cute that always confused me as a little kid why can't she just ask him but there you have it it's uh uncouth for a lady to uh call on a boy as uh, she herself <laughs> she herself says at the beginning of the movie uh and then we continue on to uh, build things up they come up with a plan to make sure that uh, uh while marty takes her to the dance uh she uh winds up being with uh george again in another thing that went over my head as a little kid uh he was planning on uh, being uh, on overstepping his bounds and sexually harassing her, which is disturbing to think for a family movie that's rated PG in 1985. Yeah, this this film, especially these kind of the plan and these few scenes, get more and more disturbing the older I get. Like the the more of an adult I am, and, and the older I, the more times I watch it, the more I'm really disturbed by it. <laughs> Yeah, um, there's a moment later on in the movie that I didn't notice until I watched it maybe two years ago. My my university put out a uh, put on a uh, movie night where we watched this and Mean Girls in one night, which was a lot of fun outside on the quad. Anyway, uh, that time I watched it, I noticed that um, <laughs> that the band was smoking pot. And one of Biff's guys comes over and says, hey, hey, I don't want to mess with no reefer madness, whatever. Like, the fact that he said that and it felt so anachronistic and just ignorant and dumb and upsetting, I hadn't noticed it any of the other times I watched it. Uh, but there you have it. They um, they wrote a movie that is so 1955 that here we can look back and be like, you know, this is, this is pretty disturbing. So, yeah, we get... Um get a few different scenes here they they kind of marty and his mum pull up at the you know at the at the school for the dance and you know you we smoke? get a few different 
yeah, so we get smoking, um, and then she she brings out a bottle of I think it's maybe whiskey or something. Um, and and fun little fact there when uh, Michael J. Fox takes a drink of that whiskey, that's his actual reaction because they put real whiskey in the bottle that they gave to him for that scene. No way. <laughs> yeah, the, the, if if you watch it, you can kind of see there's a little smirk comes off of him when he, but then he realizes he's still in the scene. Um, so obviously he needs to just carry on. But yeah, they put actual whiskey in it because they'd obviously told him to take a big swig of it. Oh my god, <laughs> I, I thought that was like uncouth or uh, frowned upon to have actual whiskey on film set or actual booze on film sets. But I think that's awesome. Uh, they were able to actually make him uh, do that, and then he he rolled with it like uh, that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, what a pro! What a pro he is to just kind of carry on from that. Um, God, I miss him. Such a shame that you know he hasn't acted in so many years. It makes me really sad. But no, he's he's such a great actor here, and uh, I really wish he did more. You know. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we get kind of get this awkward scene. You know, the, the drinking and the smoking and. Then Lorraine kisses him, and it's oh, it's like kissing my brother, which is obviously Ugh. a nod to the fact that it's her son from the future. Oh, mm-hmm. the little moments there that call back to the beginning, where um, uh, where she's like, no, no smoking or drinking. She's so uptight, and you wouldn't ever guess that she was ever like this. I thought that was a sweet little thing. Like as creepy as this is, he's learning something new about his family that I guess at this point is going to be completely irrelevant, given how they are at the end of the movie, how his family is at the end of the movie, but. Uh, it, it was a weird, I don't want to say bonding moment, but it was cool for him, for me at least, to watch him learn something new about his mother in a weird way. Yeah, I, I kind of get what you mean, but this is not the way I want to learn more about my parents. Yeah, no, me neither. That's just not cool. <laughs> I, I, I'll take the time travel, no problem at all, but I will be avoiding <laughs> my parents. Uh, <laughs> uh, the fact that at the end of the movie, they're so much more open about talking about these things. I mean, they talked about how they met at the beginning of the movie, but they really did seem more open at the end of the movie, uh, talking to their kids about, oh, well, if it wasn't for Biff, we wouldn't have fallen in love. LOL, LOL. I thought that that works. I mean, they have a much healthier family at the, at the end of the movie, and that's another, again, consequence of Marty going back and mucking up with 1955. But I really did like that, um, uh, that it was a weird sweet moment of marty realizing oh this is what my mother was like in 1955 that makes a lot more sense now given how i know her yeah definitely uh and then the fish under the sea sorry enchantment under the sea dance that's not what it's called enchantment under the sea dance (laughs) they uh, (laughs) uh this dance i mean i never had any themed dances in high school or uh any sort of stuff like this, but oh my god, they went all out on making this an undersea world thing, which I thought was really funny. Oh yeah, I know. There's like a it's like a six foot statue of Neptune and and all the decorations. I don't know where this this was not what it was like for me at school. Nope. <laughs> well, we don't really have dances in the UK, so it's not it's not really a thing that we do. Really, that's interesting. I never would have guessed that. No, it's not something that happens. At all. We we occasionally have what they'd call a disco, like a DJ will come in to the the gym and just play some music when you're like ten, eleven. But <laughs> no, we we certainly don't have dances and things like that. Really, do you have prom? Yeah, a lot of schools have prom now. At the end, like when we finished school at sixteen, mm-hmm. um, which I did. Um, it wasn't great. It was nothing like in the movie, so I was really annoyed about that. Um, it never is. I went to two proms in high school. They're never like the freaking movies. Oh, oh well, I don't, I don't feel so bad now, as long as that's not just what everyone's getting in America. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and then, and then they kind of do like a um, a big celebration at the end of when you finish university, but it's not it's not a, a prom per se. Now the I remember there was uh, there were all these shows My Sweet Sixteen on MTV that really made it look like people go all out on these things and in my experience that's not necessarily the case if you really wanted to go all out on something crazy like that like it's not going to be prom it's going to be something like a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah uh, but prom and all these little other dances are never as elaborate I've never seen a live band at any of these things I don't know if that was a 1950s thing but there sure as hell wasn't <laughs> any when I was a kid. <laughs> Uh, but we get a uh, whole bunch of cool stuff with uh, everyone dancing and having a good time, and uh, a whole bunch of weird stuff happens with uh, 
uh, I forget exactly how this happens. I know I just rewatched the movie, but this is fuzzy to me. How the singer ends up breaking his hand? Sure. So we get, so Biff goes over to the car with Marty, um, drags Marty out of the car and Billy Zane and his friends take him off while Biff does what he does in the car. Um, and mm-hmm. those guys then go and dump him in the back of the, the band's car, um, which is oh. the point at which they all get out. They've all clearly been smoking uh, in the car and all the smoke comes out. Um, and they've <laughs> put him in the, sorry, the trunk. The trunk, I called it a boot, but you knew what I meant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the keys apparently are in the trunk. Uh, so the guitarist is trying, it manages to open it up with a screwdriver or it kind of looks like a screwdriver maybe. And he slices his hand and can't play. Okay, I I was wondering how the band and Marty and the trunk got all in the same sequence, but there you go. That makes a lot more sense. It was the band's car. That's why they were there. That Okay, there we go. Cool. Uh, and then it leads to <laughs> really funny scene, unless you know somebody that knows how to play the guitar. At this point, he might as well have looked directly at the camera and just kind of smiled. <laughs> you know what's going to happen? <laughs> Exactly. I also really liked his diatribe there where he goes, well, if there's no music, they can't kiss. If they don't kiss, then I'm history. And that like really long panic string of characters. Again, this has to be a super stressful night for him. He has to do like five or six different things to make sure that the space-time continuum doesn't get screwed up and he exists after it. But um, they that funny little thing like there needs to be music that's established in his panic uh which leads to him being on stage and leads to uh the wonderful 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 johnny be good scene another scene that could have easily been cut but it's just hilarious and awesome and the fact that this movie is again just under two hours uh they did everything so uh uh, so briskly with the plot to make everything work really well and make all the characters real that they could still throw in a five minute gag scene of Marty playing a uh, an older or it's an oldie where he comes from but it, it doesn't exist in 1955 <laughs> yet I thought that was fantastic this is I, that, I mean there's a lot to love about this film but this I think is my favorite scene I, as soon as this I get to this point I'm just so excited to watch this like you know was it two and a half minutes maybe three minutes mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's just so much fun. Um, and like you say, to be able to get that th- kind of three minutes of somebody just playing guitar, basically, um, into a two hour film is, is amazing. This is your cousin, Marvin Berry. That, that gets me every time. I don't think, I didn't think I got that joke until I was about probably 18. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it had ever occurred to me. Exactly. I also love that he uh, he goes, okay, uh, there's a riff on B, watch me for the changes, try keep up. And that just explains away the fact that this band's never heard the song before, and he can just solo away, and the band will know exactly what to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm no, I'm no musician, but I think you're going to need more than that. I, oh, much I, I more than that. I could be wrong. <laughs> no, I, I, I know nothing about that uh, either, but the fact that they were able to do the cool little... Like, those drum beats could not be explained away by that and how everyone was so on the same page no that doesn't work <laughs> no, definitely. Um, exactly uh but lo and behold uh george and lorraine kiss and the magical picture that has been i guess i, I explain this away as calculating the probability of that happening uh so that it works on screen but no that that would not happen he would just ex- he would just pop away immediately but the way i justify this in my head and the way i've understood it is that the clerk, because the, the point at which they are guaranteed to be together, his parents, is the point at which they kiss. Like, that's the that's the pivotal moment in their relationship. And as this is how I justify it. Up until that point, that's why he starts fading away, because it's less and less likely that they're going to kiss. Mm-hmm. And then when they do kiss, that's when it's all good again. Exactly. And the fact that the kiss has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on any of their future relationships. Maybe uh, this gives George a taste for punching people in the face, so he keeps punching people and they break up. No, that doesn't actually happen. Uh, But they kiss and everything works out because the script says so. Hooray. And it's cute and it works. But uh, all like... I still never feel satisfied at the end of the movie because everything is still so up in the air and ridiculous uh, that... I'm amazed that everything is as similar to the beginning as it is. 
Uh, like maybe this changes George's character just enough that they don't fall in love with each other afterwards, or maybe they buy a different house on a different road, but no, it's the exact same house, even though it's filled with different things and slightly different people. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And they're clearly, they're clearly kind of richer than they were before because they've now Mm -hmm. got the Toyota pickup truck. They've got the BMW that, that, uh, Biff is cleaning and, and, and then presumably a third car because they only had two at the beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. But like you say, yeah, they're still in the same house. Um, and it kind of does bring up a good point because it almost seems like the parents are two completely different people. At, yeah. So I don't see how everything else about their lives was exactly the same. Exactly. No, it's um, it, it's cute and it works, and I think it's it's fun. Uh, but all the other stuff that could possibly happen. Like the fact that he says, hey, if you ever have a kid and he sets fire to the carpet accidentally, go easy on him. Like those little things didn't inform anything. Like they didn't think that their son in 1985 looks disturbingly similar to the guy that she made out with 30 years before. But imagine you'd been told that in 1955 and then it gets to, you know, whenever it was, he said he was like eight or something and he's actually set fire to the rug. You would be freaking out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be a terrifying experience. And as you say, <laughs> the, and then your child suddenly grows into the guy who was pivotal to your relationship and the reason that you're together in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then um, Marty himself, I believe, would change uh, if things happen as instantaneously as they do in this world. Uh, as soon as he said that, he should have changed into a slightly different person that was slightly less afraid of his parents for screaming at him uh, for saying the fire on the rug. Uh, the fact that, again, Marty goes back to 1985 and uh, is the person who he is throughout this whole thing, so much would have changed around him. And he must take like two or three weeks to acclimate to all of his new relationships and the slightly different ways that he interacts with people. Yeah, definitely, and you've got yeah. It it, it would be uh, just just crazy, right? Can you imagine Doc Brown trying to hide the fact that he knows Marty from Marty? <laughs> well, this yeah. I mean, I I get. I've never really thought about that either because we don't ever really establish how long they've been friends. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of all we know is that it's presumably you know less than seventeen years because that's how old Marty's supposed to be. So you can assume it's maybe only five years, maybe seven. Who knows? But um. But yeah, so you've got the doc who who already knows this this person before he's really met him in the proper timeline. So yeah, how, I I still they never really establish how they became friends anyway. So you, mm. we we kind of get this weird, you know, the doc has known for thirty years and he's had to wait until that exact moment to talk about it with Marty. Exactly, it's that exact moment must be very scary for him because also he's wearing a bulletproof vest there's nothing preventing the guys from shooting him anywhere where there's not a bulletproof vest and there's also nothing preventing anybody from uh stopping the whole thing outright um i would imagine that if doc had read that letter and knew it he would maybe be more careful about getting the plutonium in the first place (laughs) because he doesn't seem to give a crap either way because the terrorists still come and shoot him uh I I don't know uh, all these uh, questions that you can ask about Back to the Future and time travel and how flippity floppity wibbly wobbly timey wimey all this is. It's it still doesn't get in the way of the story and the characters, which I think is really admirable. Here we are splitting hairs and it's fun. I love this. Have you seen Primer? Yeah, I've seen Primer. Yeah, it's another movie like that where you can really split hairs and get nitty gritty into everything, but. To me, Primer is much more about the time travel rather than any of the characters, because the characters are extremely one-dimensional and whoever Shane Carruth could get at the time to film it. Anyway, uh, the fact that all of this happens and uh, doesn't get in the way of how awesome Doc Brown or Lorraine or uh, Marty McFly or George McFly are, I think it it's a testament to how powerful the movie is and how good the script is. Also, fun fact, they went back to the future and that whole last sequence uh, happened where they, the lightning struck and they got the thing. We just skipped over that. That's fine. I don't like that scene very much. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I, I mean, I, I texted you about this immediately before we started. It's so stressful that all the stuff is happening. Like, this movie has five different endings and that scene goes on for, was it seven minutes and 41 seconds before he says that the uh, the lightning strikes? I I can't imagine actually 
trying to do all this stuff in one night. No, it, I, I do kind of agree with you. Like, I guess it doesn't help. I've seen it so many times, but yeah, I, I, I find this kind of last, or you know, that scene right before they go back. It's it's kind of just so stressful because the the wire comes off and Doc climbs the clock tower and he's hanging off and he gets that one in but then he pulls the other one and that one literally comes exactly as the lightning strikes which and would then obviously the have killed him. Doesn't but... start. <laughs> it's terrible. It's so terrible. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I I think it's it is good as as a whole, but I think if you've seen it more than once or twice, it it, it kind of gets even more stressful the more you watch mm-hmm. it. No, I wholeheartedly agree. It's so difficult to actually try to parse it out. Like, even though I have seen this so many times and I know how it ends, I never feel satisfied because everything still feels like it's dangling by a thread. And I guess that's, to the movie's credit, that's probably what they were going for, that even people watching it 30 years later can still be incredibly stressed out by the ending. Uh, I'm I'm sure that's what they were going for. Uh, But everything happens. Like, he misses the alarm uh, because the engine wouldn't start. And he's trying to floor, he's trying to floor it. He winds up like just smacking his head on it and it starts right back up. It's okay, fine. And also, the other thing that's always bothered me, they never established when in the 10.04 minute the lightning struck. So I'm guessing Doc Brown always assumed it was right when it uh, right when it struck. But uh, who knows? Maybe it was 45 seconds into that minute. Maybe it was immediately after the minute. Maybe it was 59 seconds and it might as well be 10.05. Who knows? They never established that. And that's always freaked me out because it has to be precise and they don't actually know. So they're leaving it to chance. That always destroys me when I watch this movie. Have you ever thought about that? I, I had never considered that. What I had considered... Which actually kind of goes into what you've said. So he doesn't hit the alarm clock. And he's, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 seconds after the alarm clock goes off. Or mm-hmm. I guess it's about 10 seconds. So that's, you know, that's a, nearly a quarter of a minute that he's past 10.04. Or, you know, I guess slightly before that. But he's leaving that 10 seconds later. But the doc has been so precise with everything. He's like, pull away from this line, go exactly when the alarm clock goes. And none of that happens. They also never establish where on the line he has to start. If they're going to be as precise as possible, does he have to align the front wheels or the back wheels or the bumper or right in the middle of the car? They never establish that either. No, that would, that would stress (laughs) me out. If somebody said, right, just take this car. It's two miles up there and just, just on the line. And there's no other conversation about it. (laughs) Yeah, but somehow maybe the doc was wrong and off by the exact amount of time that Marty was stalled at the starting line. Maybe. I'm guessing that's how it has to happen, but (laughs) every time I watch this movie, I can't get that out of my head. And also, why does he only give himself 10 minutes extra? Mm -hmm. He he could give himself an entire day. Although, well... I always ex- explain that way because of the time travel paradox. Uh, did they ever mention in this movie that you can't meet yourself? Or uh, is it exclusively in Back to the Future 2? No, that's only in Back to the Future 2 because obviously the Doc, as far as the Doc is concerned, he doesn't know that he's ever going to get a chance to even see himself mm-hmm. uh, in this. Right. Except in Back to the Future 2, wherein that exact thing happens, and it's great. Uh, but... Uh, he goes back to the future. It's great. They go back to 1985. There's a homeless guy there, and he's like, yay, finally, this is 1985. He goes and finds Doc, who was... Uh, he, he didn't give himself enough time. He could have given himself an extra hour if he wanted uh, just to hide and make sure that the terrorist didn't come. Uh, but uh, he goes up to him, and he figured, what the hell? Read the letter. Get a bulletproof vest. That was a sweet moment. Yeah, it was nice. I, I, they kind of drag out a little bit that the doc is kind of lying there completely lifeless. Mm-hmm. And then he opens his eyes. Um, but I think that's probably just because I'm still a bit stressed from the previous scene. <laughs> um. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like Return of the King, uh, this movie has like five or six different endings. You have the dance where Marty is assured that he will exist. Uh, you have going back to 1985 where he'll be sure he can exist in his proper time and not have to live as days in 1955. Uh, you have Doc becoming alive again or having read the thing. And then you have uh, his family and then you have Jennifer. And then you have, in addition to all of those endings, to wrap things up, you have direct setup for a sequel. <laughs> it's which, like... which wasn't a setup for a sequel when they did it. Oh, really? No, they had no... 
they had no plans to do a sequel. I mean, obviously, it's kind of implied that it gives them an in to do a sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had no plans to do a sequel, and the to be continued stuff was only added to the home video releases. Um, so if you if you watched it at the at the cinema when it came out, there was no to be continued um, stuff at at the end. Interesting, because I always remembered watching that and thinking, wow, they really planned this perfectly because they shot two and three together as well. And I just assumed that one, two and three were produced at the same time. That's that's really cool. I never would have gotten that, especially because, yeah, my my DVD copy has this really annoying to be continued and then like a trailer for the second part of the movie. And it's dumb. Oh, does your back to the part one have that? I didn't realize. I know that part two has got that terrible come back for part three with the the you know the wild west and it shows like basically the whole film at the end i didn't realize the first one had that as well but sorry. on my copy yeah i only have one copy on like your five or six but i do have uh, a copy with like a trailer for back to the future 2 at the end of back to the future one and it's really dumb i also have one copy which is a you know file on my on one of my hard drive which is a single continuous file of a six hour movie which is all three of them put together with all the no. to-be-continued stuff taken out. <laughs> no, when I was watching this movie, I thought, you know, I want that. I want a six-hour-long version of the movie that you made, I'm sure, uh, with your DVDs. But when it, uh, when I was watching, I was like, I really want this to exist. This would be amazing. Um, but it wound up being uh, like just never something I thought of. Out of curiosity, when does it cut from uh, Back to the Future 1 to Back to the Future 2? Does it use the original Jennifer actor at the end tail end there or the new one? Uh, I'm trying to think because I haven't I haven't watched it for a while. It's I've had I've had it for years, but I, if I remember correctly, it has the original Jennifer, where he he sees the truck and he gives her, oh I haven't seen you for a week and all of that kind of stuff. And I think at that point, as the doc turns up, it switches to the other uh, the other <laughs> Jennifer. Um, but yeah, I, th- that that's a weird one as well that they kind of because they didn't have the same actors and and actors because mm-hmm. they didn't have Crispin Glover, they didn't have uh, whoever it is that played Leah Tom, uh, not Leah Thompson, she's uh, Lorraine. Uh, they didn't have Claudia Wells. Thank sure, you, Claudia Wells. Uh- <laughs> um, so yeah, they had to re refilm that whole section for mm-hmm. the second film to to do the beginning of that. But uh, but yeah, I mean it's kind of the the last line you know where we're going we don't need roads is is just perfect it's yes it does feel like a setup to a sequel and i think that's because we've all seen like like you said trailer on yours or the to be continued but it's just such a fun kind of oh my god they're going to the future and and the the, the delorean flies now and this is amazing and this is the like, I, I just everything about this film makes me so excited to, to to watch it and i i get to the end and i'm like i'm going to have to watch the second one now Mm-hmm. No, Back to the Future 2 is my favorite for those reasons. I think 1 is a better movie, but 2 is my favorite because of all the time travel stuff and all the weird, completely different plot. And then the third one just feels like a return to the first one, which isn't bad, but I really don't like the third one. Yeah, all those little moments of uh, trying to figure out uh, how to bridge from one and two i remember hearing an interview with the writers they were like yeah we really 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 regretted putting jennifer in that car too because it made the filming the second one so much more difficult which is why they just uh uh knock her out and keep her in in a dumpster (laughs) for most of the second movie women in the 80s in movies everybody it's fantastic Mm. Mm. what's your favorite of the three i don't know see i think i agree with you i think the, the the first one is you know it, it's great the, the story is great and it kind of establishes the the rules of time travel and all the characters are really well established but yeah i think i agree with you i think the second one um it is it's just really cool like you get the future you get the past again you get to see some scenes from the first film which they had to refilm Mm-hmm. with uh, somebody who looks like Crispin Glover from the back, but not actually them. That was weird. I I never think about the parallels between the first and second, or not the parallels, but the fact that Marty, another Marty is lurking around during the entire first movie. <laughs> I never think about that until I actually watch the second, and one day I want to go back and just watch the last act of the movie and be like, yeah, Marty's hanging out under a table over there and uh, climbing the rafters back there. Like, I, I think it's really funny. <laughs> Yeah, it's really not. There's there is there's one thing that bugs me. On, I know we're not talking about the second one. Go ahead. Um, but you you know where he says to the band, he says, "Watch me for the changes and try to keep up." 
and he says that to the band in the first one. In the second one, they've obviously taken that audio, but then put it as if he said it into the microphone. <gasps> what? And it really bugs me. Oh my, it has the echo of that like 1950s microphone on? Oh God. Yeah, it's it's it, that that's you know there, there's a few bits of weirdness, is especially you know when they're refilming and doing different stuff. But that really bugs me. I'll have to keep an eye out for that when I watch it next, which will hopefully be sometime soon. Hey, come back at some to- at some point to talk about the second one. That'll be fun. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's Back to the Future. It's uh, it's a movie. I really like it, and it sets up uh, I think one of the best sequels ever made and one of the worst sequels ever made uh, simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd agree with that. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Uh, Rob, hey, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we made it to the end. Uh, thank you for uh, recommending we do this uh, movie for the show and uh, having me rewatch it because I had a blast rewatching it. This is it reminded me how much I love this movie. So thank you for that. No, thank you for for having me on and allowing me to talk about Back to the Future for an hour or so. Um, yeah, no, this is this has been fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's been a lot of fun. Maybe I'll get a tattoo. Who knows? Oh man, I, what is it with Legos that has been so? Why are they so per- pervasive now? Oh man, I don't know. You and Mike go on and on about it. I know I do. <laughs> I mean, no, no, that's not a bad thing. But like, what is like, what's the resurgence in popularity now that they're like tying in with new properties? Or how did you get back into it? God, you know, I don't know. I think it was Mike's fault. He he mentioned it on a podcast probably three or four years ago now. And I thought, you know, I thought, oh, I think my parents have still got my Lego in in the in the attic. Um, so I went and got that, and then I was, oh, maybe I'll buy a couple of sets, and I'll buy a few bits here and there, and, and now like it's just got completely out of control. <laughs> um, and, I, and I mean, there's there's a huge, just a a huge uh, community of people, like adults, um, you know, that are into Lego. It's 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 amazing how many people. Um, that aren't kids are into it that makes me so happy especially because i'm getting so much crap from my parents for playing pokemon go and they're like how old are you again you're playing pokemon go what no it's it's fun that's that's what people do now people don't give a crap about what anything looks like uh you're gonna play with legos and play pokemon until uh till the cows come home and i think pokemon go is fair because that is i'm not a massive fan of it the the actual implementation of it but like it's the They've managed to capture exactly what was amazing about playing Pokemon as a kid, and you, you know, you wanted to actually go out and catch Pokemon, and that's exactly what they've done. It's amazing, and I mean, it, you're right; it's not that good. The AR, I could care less about, uh, like when you're actually catching the Pokemon and flicking a little Pokeball. But I'm a really big fan of the go around the world and see interesting things aspect. I was in Princeton yesterday and I was hanging out with a friend. We were looking and uh, just talking about Pokemon Go and then we looked up at this big fountain next to us and we both said, this is probably a Pokestop. So we pulled out our phones and sure enough, we got a bunch of free Pokeballs there. And that aspect of it was always really cool to me, but I honestly have no idea what to do with any of the Pokemon I've caught. I really hope they refine that or at least make it more like the original games. Yeah, it definitely needs some um, some trade-in, you know, maybe some kind of online play to it you know because kind of me and you can't interact in that game at all which is um, weird because they asked for uh they asked for usernames so i thought people would be it would be like a little social network too but no there's literally nothing going on with it yeah i mean maybe that's coming but who knows <laughs>